Hello and welcome. My name is Anuj and I'm the host of the Way Forward podcast. We're bringing you interviews from inspirational people that have had success and failure around the startup space or unique industries. Through their stories, we're here to help you pave the way forward. Before we begin, I'd like to talk about our sponsors for this episode, Piqua.io. Piqua.io helps local Australian and New Zealand companies de-risk global tech recruitment, helping them source, vet, and directly recruit tech talent. The firm believes in building in-house capability on a mission to solve the local tech skill shortage. To learn more about global tech recruitment, visit Piqua.io. Today we're in conversation with Trent Gunthorpe, who is a CPO of ASL. Now, Trent has been in the fintech space for over 20 years and was a part of GE Capital, American Express, where he was the head of strategy for North Asia, South Asia and the APAC region, as well as head of payments for New Zealand and Australia. He's also worked for Cuscal as head of product uh, and he's got a mountain of experience throughout all places. Today we go into a story and also dive into how to adapt into high-pressure scenarios where you need to deliver fast, but also how to adapt into totally foreign environments and thrive. Let's begin. Hey Trent, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Hi AJ, I'm glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. I'd love to kickstart the conversation with learning more about why you do what you do. I have always enjoyed the work that I do. So I've made choices to do things that I enjoy rather than do things that I don't enjoy. And that's really led the path to where I am here today. When I joined American Express, it was in 2007 and in 2008 was when the GFC hit. And I think the best advice that I got at that time was when companies or organisations go through really bad times, it's the ones that hunker down and commit to the challenges and help the company to get through that really get rewarded and recognized. So I made a conscious decision to do that. We made sure that we balanced reducing cost, but also looking after our customers as well, because we knew there would be another side of the GFC. We wanted to make sure that our customers were still there with us at the other side and, and hopefully more satisfied from the way that we dealt with them. And so when the GFC happened, mentally, how was it? How did you deal with it? I think I was a bit naive, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I didn't fully appreciate what the impacts would be. And I recall one day when I'm managing a project and one of the deliverables was we actually made 26 people redundant in one day. And you think about the technical execution, but it's not until you hit those points that you realise that there's people involved and the sensitivities around that, not only of those 26 people, but everybody surrounded in driving that change. Yeah. What I also understand is with the roles you've had within American Express, you've managed to work across several countries around the globe. What would you say is was the most interesting and really challenged you and why did that challenge you? You can't go into a a market or to employees or customers in different markets and expect them to be exactly the same. When I I first took on a team in India, Mm -hmm. I remember I I got a book to read on the plane over there on how to do business in India. I remember one of the things in there, it says, don't ask female employees about their husbands or partners. I was like, okay, well, I better not do that because I don't want to insult anybody. I ended up having 
some long-term employees based in India and have became, you know, ongoing friends. And it's funny having those conversations years afterwards, speaking to that female employee. I said, oh, you realise it did this? And she was just like, what did you do that for? I said, because I, I learned I was trying to do the right thing and I was trying to be respectful. Yeah. And she goes, no, you, you could have asked. I could have told you whether it was wrong or, or right. Share that experience with the people that you're working with as well because they, they should appreciate where you're coming from. When I was working at GE, I was asked about a role in Sydney on the Wednesday. I accepted the role. I don't know if I was young or not stupid. By the Friday, I finished up my role in, in Brisbane. Saturday, packed up my car, drove to Sydney and started a new job on the Monday. But I recall I took over an operation based out at sort of Western Sydney, which is highly multicultural. I had a group of employees come to me and say, oh, we want to do this thing around Ramadan and we yep. want to take some time off. I thought they were joking. I thought they made up Ramadan. They thought it was hilarious, but I didn't know what it was. But from that, they said, hey, why don't we do this? Every Saturday night, we'll do a round robin of houses and we'll do a cultural meal. So one Saturday night might be a Bangladeshi meal. The next one might be Vietnamese. Next one's Indian. And it was a huge opportunity. I loved it. It gave me appreciation that we're all the same, but we also need to realise that we're different as well and just understanding where those differences are and being respectful. You probably also got to learn these people a whole lot more, see their right. families, gain a stronger connection. If you were to build a team again, would this be something on your to-do list? As far as team development goes, I think where I've landed to is you want to find the, the best people. But I think it's also important to have diversity in the team as well and making sure that you've got a quality from a, a gender perspective less so race in Australia, but I know it's more so in other countries. But what I, what I really look for is the dynamic in the team. I've had lots of different um, conversations from people from different countries and they say that they want to be able to go move to the US, for example. How do I do that? And you've got to have the conversations to say, well, communication is really important. And right now, English is your second language and you've got a tone and a pace of speech that is different to the way that it's um, spoken in the US, be upfront with those differences and help them to understand that when they're doing business with another country, you need to think about those types of things. But also too, from a gender point of view, I recall having a conversation with a younger employee and she was very smart, very ambitious, very nice natured. She'd just, just a nice all-rounder. And I remember having a conversation with her. She goes, you know, I don't want to have to be a... I don't want to be a bitch to get ahead. And I went, that's, that's really interesting because I don't think you need to do that. And it's about linking that person with other good examples so they can get some idea on um, how they can advance their career outside of what I can offer them. So I can bring the team together. I can make sure the dynamics there, but um, supporting them in each of their different journeys. I'm glad you mentioned that because I suppose females probably think that they need to be a bit more cutthroat than men. What What is your perspective on cutthroat versus, I suppose, the absolute opposite? G was up or out. I used to sit there and have to stack rank my employees on a monthly basis, identifying who the top 20, middle 70 and bottom 10 are. And the bottom 10, if they're there two, three months in a row, are they out? Are they on performance management? What are you doing? And I knew for the eight and a half years that I was there that I was also in a discussion each month of whether I was the top 20, middle 70 or bottom 10. 
So that, that creates a culture and it helped me understand how to drive results. It helped me understand what the right leadership is because you've got to balance good behaviours with achieving results. I, I remember when I started American Express that everyone was really nice to me and I didn't mm-hmm. trust it. I thought they're being really nice. I, I, my experience is the GE experience. I've now come yep. to American Express, which is a completely different culture. Should I watch out here? What's going to happen? And then slowly over time, you realise that that's not the case. Gotcha. Yeah. Having worked in corporate quite a bit and also excelled in the space, what, what mm-hmm. do you think startups could adopt from the corporate space to be a bit more effective? My experience was coming out of corporate into fintech, and I found those fintech leaders that have worked with corporates have usually been more successful than those that have that gap in that knowledge or appreciation. So understanding how do you work with the banks to get the banking support that you need? How do you partner with the right technology companies, the right payment companies and other suppliers from a contractual point of view to a procedural procurement, but even from a people and cultural point of view, how do you work together? And I found actually the more you share and the more you work with people and the more you partner, your business is going to be successful. Particularly with early stage fintechs, they've got this great idea, they want to protect it and they you don't want other people to know because somebody might take it. I think everyone's so busy working on their own stuff that they're not going to jump on yours and recreate another business. That may happen, but 99% of the time, particularly in the fintech space, everyone's very supportive because they've all gone through the same journey. And let's take the same question there. But let's target your SMBs, like very standardized businesses. What sort of things do you think SMBs could adopt to become a whole lot more effective? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, every SMB is different and they will do it in their own way. I spent um, some time uh, working on a very small business and you can kind of get caught up in yourself. So just making sure that you're kind of taking the opportunity to step back, look at what you're doing and not getting bogged down in, in the detail. Particularly with smaller business, it's more of a mental game than, than anything else. Also yeah. from a cost perspective, I'm part of a very big organisation now. I, I'm not spending any money on doing any fancy signs or anything like that. I still just print stuff on paper and stick it up on the wall because I know what's important. And would you say serving your customers, focusing on your product, those should be the primary focal points? From a, from a product perspective, have a balance around the procedures and the formalities around managing a product and realise that getting a, I hate to use the term minimum viable product, which everyone throws around just to get out and market, but sometimes yeah. it is that I'm kind of in a situation at the moment where we're trying to decide against different suppliers and solutions um, for one particular product and sometimes I'm thinking, well, we need to offer a product because there's a gap. Let's get the a product out there that will cater for some of our customers. But get that product out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. The other thing too, particularly around fintechs, we're not saving lives. Well, maybe some are, but generally not saving lives. So we're not working in medical or aerospace or anything like that. But getting it 99.999% correct in those industries is important. Yeah, The benchmark for fintech is actually only get it 70% at right. 30% defects is actually okay within our industry, believe it or not. So if you focus about, is this, is this 70% right? Yep. Do it. Move on. 
yeah. and then you can improve it after that. From a customer point of view, I've always taken the approach of you'll always have your first customer. Deliver a solution and a service that is going to get that first customer across the line. Don't necessarily go out thinking that you're going to take on the whole of your market at once because you won't. When you're getting your first customer, of course, negotiations, from what I've read in your experience, you've, you've done a lot. In hindsight, what sort of advice would you have for good negotiations? What should um, other people out there be wary of and sort of take care of as well? Negotiation comes down to leverage and how much leverage you have so you can um, get a better deal on the negotiation. And from the get-go, I always say, look, we don't want to make this complicated. We want to focus on the partnership after the negotiation because that's going to be more important. Otherwise, you can have a very messy negotiation and then afterwards you're not getting the service that you're after and you have a conflict um, with your new supplier. You don't want that at all. So that any deal that I come out with, I always make sure that it's fair and reasonable. Even if that, that means that I need to give up a little bit, that's going to set up the relationship with that customer or that supplier into the future. That, that's the approach that I've always taken. You'll sign a contract with a customer. You'll agree a price. Customers always think that they're paying too much, by the way, so don't get sensitive about that. That'll always be yep. a thing. But you, you've, you've got to set that partnership up for hopefully for a very long future. Don't try and you know screw down for your best deal and negotiate ruthlessly. Again, we're in an industry that you only need to get 70% of the right to move forward but focus on making sure that you're establishing a good partnership out of that negotiation with your customer or with your supplier. You'll find that you'll have longer-term partnerships into the future and that that's going to create a more stable base for your business. I absolutely agree. I just love how you mentioned it needs to be a win-win as well. If it's not, how is your supplier going to survive? You know, they need to thrive to and grow. Uh, their yeah. product won't improve. Uh, it's just, it's not a win-win at all. The other point that I make is if you can't get to a deal, and the realities are that sometimes you can't, don't burn a bridge. Say, look, hey, I don't think it's going to work. It's, it's actually not working out right for us. Don't be afraid that you can walk away from a deal, but do it respectfully. Great there. Now, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Uh, that's one thing I'd love to get your views on for the future. Can it really disrupt the payments industry or do you think we're yet to see what it's going to do? At the moment, there's a lot of hype around the buying and selling of cryptocurrencies and infrastructure that's being developed on the back end of that. But you've got to realise for the most part, people are looking at them as assets, but it's an asset that is considered higher risk. And when you're in a low interest rate environment, which we are at the moment, people tend to look for more riskier assets to try and make a return. The reality is going to happen over the next few years is interest rates are going to come up. Um, mm-hmm. People are going to start earning interest income. They realise that they can then move their investments into more stable assets and so maybe the hype around the growth that we've seen in valuation in cryptocurrencies might start to dampen but the good thing that i've seen out of it is from a payment point of view and a payment is an exchange of value from one party to another i talk about australia specifically we have uh, a PEXA system which facilitates mortgage payments for house sales leveraging blockchain 
and even cryptocurrencies and NFTs, I see a title deed as an NFT. And uh, mind you, in my career, I've seen title deeds made out of rabbit skin. So moving them to an NFT is kind of like a big leap, but I can see how it has its benefits and being more secure. And you've got the NFT for your title deed for your house. You're the owner of that house. And then facilitating those um, transactions over the blockchain should be more simpler, more secure, and more dynamic as well. Using crypto as a currency to make that purchase, like I said, in the future when interest rates come up and the growth or the hype or the movements around the happen of cryptocurrencies become a bit more stable and more mainstream cryptocurrencies start to float and also see what central banks are doing around creating their own um, currencies. Doing purchases in cryptocurrencies might be more stream, it's just an option, but the demand um, for doing those transactions may increase. You should always have your eye on um, the new technologies that are coming through. And for us, that includes cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and NFTs, amongst other things, because there's a whole web 3.0 and understanding where those opportunities are. We've seen Commonwealth Bank in Australia, our largest bank, mm. entering into cryptocurrency exchanges or, or being a custodian. So they're sort of stepping into it, others will follow. And so I think this will change over the next few years. How quickly, I'm not going to say, because I remember going to a conference saying that mobile payment technology was 20 years away, and within three years uh, we had mobile yeah. payments in Australia. So I think it, definitely in the future, how quickly we'll, we'll come down to where the opportunities are and the adoption and consumer demand. But it's definitely in the future. Gotcha, gotcha. No, that's a great summary. Now, with all that you've accomplished, how did you maintain your mental health, and what do you think other high-performing individuals could learn from your experiences? Yep, I always go back to the example of when I made that change from moving from Brisbane to Sydney and accepting a job on a Wednesday and starting it on the Monday. When I came to Sydney, I was actually given an empty building in Western Sydney and said, we're going to fill this building and going to create a new direct-to-consumer business within six months. So that was a huge challenge. I worked seven days a week, all day, every day. I just moved to a new city. I had a crappy apartment that I probably shouldn't have lived where I was, but because it wasn't the priority at the time, I was like, yep, I can live there. I've got to keep working. Many a times I remember driving back and forth between home and the office and going, well, this, this is the only time that I actually am out of, out of home and or not in the office or not doing work. It was that drive. I probably drove a bit too fast between the office and home, but that was the only point that I had enjoyment. And then after we got the business up and running after about nine or 12 months, I realized I've moved to a new city. I know the people who I work with. I don't know much out of that. I still lived in this apartment, which I wasn't happy from day one and hadn't really done much with it and realized that there's got to be a balance. I achieved something great during that time from a professional perspective, but I lost a huge personal opportunity in moving to a new city and all the things that come with that. And again, it comes back to some perspective. We're not saving lives in fintech most of the time. I was, certainly wasn't saving any lives in creating that business. We don't have to get it 99.99% right all the time. 70% is good enough most of the time, and you can do that and move on. So there's, a lot of it came back to a bit of retrospect and perspective and, and understanding. And from, from that point, after those 9 to 12 months, I made the decision that 
if I got any invitation socially or whatever, I said yes, regardless of what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That opened up to going scuba diving, to going to parties, meeting people, all that type of thing, other travel, weekends away, horseback riding, all that type of thing. The reality is, and, and I found this when I left GE, like I'd been there for eight and a half years. I'd sacrificed myself completely to the company and achieved some good things and achieved some great things for them. But the day you leave, they forget you. You realise you're actually not that important, you get replaced. So when it was American Express and I'd been there for 10 years, and when I walked out, I walked out with a lot of good friendships because I think my um, approach had changed after the my GE experience. But realising that when I walked out, it was like job done. After 10 years, job done. And I realised tomorrow they're just going to forget me anyway. So it doesn't really matter. I just appreciate the, the relationships that I took away from American Express and the um, experiences that it gave me. I put that perspective to other people so they understand that what my expectations are and family is important, your health is important. We're not saving lives. You don't have to get it 99.99% correct. And you actually find that you're actually going to be more successful because you won't spend time worrying about stuff that you don't need to worry about. Just focus on the important stuff, get that done, and you'll find that you'll be far more successful and be able to achieve greater things. Great advice. So my takeaways there is of course aim for that 70% work on what's important but also yeah. balance out your life you've got professional life as well but you've got other elements of your life as well personally and this is the last question what would you like to see more of in the fintech space and why i think there's been a lot of innovation a lot of successes in fintech there's got to be that coming together of the fintech industries and the different markets because the reality is there's a lot of legislation, policies, practices that aren't set up for fintechs. You've got to go work through as an industry to make sure that you're challenging the government, you're challenging other industry groups, you're challenging key suppliers to make sure that they're recognising the opportunities in fintechs and the needs and the differences that fintechs have. One of the key issues that you know we're seeing is around the practice of debanking. And I remember going to one bank and I was declined from opening up just a business transaction account, no lending, no credit, nothing like that. I'm like, I'm like what are you talking about? Um, they said, oh, because your industry code is not within our banking policy. And I'm like, oh, what's the code? And because they bundled everything together, both low-risk fintech and high-risk fintech didn't accept anybody. I'm not going to hear, be here and win a battle against the bank's policies and overcome them so, so I can open up a bank account with them. I ended up just walking across the road going to another bank and opening up a bank account with them with no problems. But it's those types of things. It's just clear from the bank's policies that they have a sweeping policy. They don't understand the differences within fintech, that yes, there are some higher risk activities and there's some lower risk activities, but to bundle them all together and just decline on that basis means that you don't want to do any business with any fintechs. Mm. And there's fintechs there that have got a lot of investment. They've got a lot of opportunity from a banking service perspective would eventually take on a lot more banking services, which would end up being a great customer for a bank. But just to have that sweeping policy around fintech and not even allowing to open up a business bank account just to run transactions through is a, is a missed opportunity. As a fintech you won't be able to make that change. 
but as an industry group or an association, you have greater influence and be able to make those changes. That's great. I hope that does happen. Trent, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, sharing your journey, sharing your advice. It's been great chatting with you. Once again, thank you so much. Thanks, AJ. Absolute pleasure. Alrighty, that's all folks. Thank you so much for listening. We'll have a new episode for you next week.